fact, we hear in Luke 18 how ultimately He will help. And so Luke 18, and we're going to begin this morning in verse 28. Hear now the Word of God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they, did, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and a time to come and to consider it. We ask in your kindness to us that we would see more clearly today the man of sorrows to whom we praised just a moment ago. Father, give us eyes to see and a heart to rejoice in these truths. And Lord, we pray for the work through the ministry streetlights in Greece. We pray for those individuals impacted by Ryan and Christine and Lanson, Father. And we in particular pray this morning for Lena. And thank you by your grace, even through great tragedy, you have brought about redemption. You have a new daughter and we have a new sister. We ask that you would help her, Father, and all those who might come to Christ through this tragedy to grow in their understanding and commitment to the Lord knowing all that He has done for them. Help us to understand it too, that it might change our lives for Jesus' sake. We ask it in His name. Amen. Dr. Josiah Ober, who is a professor of political science at Stanford University, has contributed to a series of essays entitled, What If? And they are essays where a bunch of uh, scholars imagine that if uh, something, some historical event was changed, how everything else that follows might be impacted. Well, Dr. Ober in particular addresses um, the, the historical events around Jesus. He writes, If Mark Antony would have won at Actium, Jesus of Nazareth, born just a short duration after the battle, would have come to manhood in a very different society one administered by highly trained professional Egyptian bureaucrats rather than nervous amateurs like Pontius Pilate. Those Egyptian bureaucrats would have had a much closer sense of how Jerusalem politics worked. They might have found some solution to local concerns about a self-proclaimed Messiah that would not have required his crucifixion. They might, for example, have arranged for him to move to Alexandria 
where the sophisticated Hellenized local Jewish population would not be scandalized by his audacious ideas. So Jesus might have grown old, gathering to himself a following attracted by his socio-religious message rather than dramatic martyrdom. He concludes by saying, if so, Christianity might have developed quite differently. It's kind of interesting, I think, to imagine, if you will, elderly Jesus giving his uh, lectures to Alexandrian society as they gather to hear what he might have to say. Of course, it does raise a question, doesn't it? That the question being, was it his socio-religious message, as Dr. Ober will put it, that truly attracted those who have given their life to him? Or was it his life? And in, perhaps we might even say his death. There are a lot of views on Jesus, as you know. Many people find uh, very favorable views of Jesus. The Muslims, of course, consider him a prophet. Hindus and Mormons alike consider him to be one of millions of gods. Um, as even secularists seem to like Jesus. Everybody seems to like Jesus. I went to school in Northern California um, with, uh, amongst um, the Redwood Forest and uh, a great deal of California hippies. And, um, and uh, they all love Jesus. Let me tell you, the hippies love Jesus. They don't like Paul much, but they love Jesus, right? Um, you know, hippies like Jesus and Republicans like Jesus and Racists like Jesus, and feminists like Jesus, and homosexuals like Jesus, and and Marxists like Jesus. It seems like Jesus is very, very popular. Everybody likes Jesus because somehow they think he validates their position. The question is, does he really? I like how Mark Dever asks, was Jesus majesty in the eye of the beholder? Is he just putty for our imagination? Well, if you actually consider the earliest accounts of our Lord, the eyewitness accounts written within years of his life, a handful of decades from his death, you realize that the problem with these ideas about Jesus, about Jesus being this or that, is that Jesus' message seems to be continually linked to his martyrdom. In fact, I would suggest to you that central to the Christian faith is not the life of Jesus, but it is the death of Jesus and his following resurrection. And, and, and so if you're here this morning and maybe you don't identify yourself as a follower of Christ, maybe you're thinking, okay, what is Christianity? Let me explain that, that the very heart of Christianity is not, not the teaching of the, uh, the Lord Jesus or even the life of the Lord Jesus, but it is his, his death for sinners. And Jesus taught this. Very clearly, he demonstrated this profoundly. And even in this passage, you'll notice that he prepared his followers preemptively. As we find our way to Luke 18, and Jesus now explaining for the third time in the greatest detail that he will soon be betrayed, and he will be beaten, and he will be killed, and on the third day he will rise from the dead. Jesus explained to us that he came to die. In fact, he even tells us, as you know, how that's going to happen. And so I would encourage all of us this morning not to make the mistake that uh, I'm sure the esteemed Dr. Ober has made, this idea that things must have gotten out of hand, right? And if there was, you know, another political party ruling Jerusalem at the time, uh, history would have been quite different. Let me be uh, unequivocal here. Things did not get out of hand. 
Things were, in fact, completely in hand, in the hand of God Almighty, and things went according to God's plan, as we see Jesus even announcing that plan before it happens. And so this morning, what I would like to do is I would simply like to consider the death of Jesus Christ. And now, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, this may be somewhat uh, elementary for us, and that's okay, I think, as we refresh in our minds the work of Jesus through His crucifixion. And, and, um, and so we, we find ourselves considering the death of Jesus this morning. Now, many of you have been asking over and over again um, over the past handful of years. And to be honest, yeah, it's getting kind of annoying. So uh, here it is. I'm going to give you your 10-point sermon that you've all been demanding, okay? And then, then stop asking me for it anymore after that, okay? And so 10 truths about the death of Jesus will begin in verse 31, considering that it was and embraced death. The Bible says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. He would say we're going up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is literally built upon a mountain. It's the very mountain that uh, Isaac, some thousand years earlier, carried the wood of his own sacrifice. It's the very mountain at that spot where they built the temple. It's about 3,000 feet above sea level. And Jesus says, We're going up there, and we're going there. We're ascending into the holy city. Because that's where I will die. Jesus knows this. Jesus has embraced this death. In fact, he has been walking to the center of the opposition to his ministry all the way since Luke 9 and verse 51. Now, I know that was a long time ago, wasn't it? But that was that great hinge verse in Luke's gospel where Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. It's a very popular, powerful ministry. And then in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, after it was clearly declared who he was, Peter declared you're the Christ. He was transfigured on, on the mountain. And then in Luke 9, 51, the Bible says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And it's from Luke 9, these 10 chapters, which are called the travel narratives in Luke's gospel, he has been marching towards Jerusalem. Now, often we don't know where he is in this march in Luke's gospel. But you notice as we're getting closer to Jerusalem, Mark will start giving us geographical markers. Let me just show you a couple. Well, of course, you know there in verse 31, he says we're going up to Jerusalem. But look in verse 35. It says, as he drew near to Jericho. Jericho would be just be simply 15 miles to the east of Jerusalem. In chapter 19, verse 1, he entered Jericho. And then in uh, verse 11 of chapter 19, it it says he was now near Jerusalem. And finally in verse 28, you notice that he is going up into Jerusalem. So he keeps getting closer and closer and closer. That this long journey that began 10 chapters ago is coming to an end as Jesus marches into his death. Now I say this is an embraced death. That Jesus knows he's going there. In fact, he's not meandering to Jerusalem. He's not taking his time. He's not lagging behind like some condemned criminal who reluctantly being dragged to his death. No, every step towards Jerusalem was a conscious decision to accept his coming suffering. If you read in Mark's parallel account, Mark says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of him, ahead of them, excuse me. I don't know if you can imagine what that might be in Jesus taking these steps along this road all by himself and perhaps a handful of paces behind him, hundreds of people following him, but he, he walking there alone, everyone else silently behind him. 
I trust they were unsure of what was coming in Jerusalem. They had a sense that it was going to be severe. Of course, Jesus was not unsure. He knew exactly. He's already clearly explained his death twice before. For instance, in Luke 9 and verse 22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. I think those events are in his mind as he walks on ahead. I wonder if he's meditating upon them. I wonder if he's silently speaking to his father about them. And yet he walks on, embracing the father's will. Please understand, Christian, that if Jesus would walk into his death in obedience to God and out of his love for you, if he will do that, can you imagine him not being good to you now? I mean, it makes no sense if Jesus would say, okay, I will die for you. But then I'm going to just let you struggle on your own through the rest of your life. Now, he who willingly gave up his life will certainly care for ours. As you see, he embraced this death. Secondly, you'll note that it is an announced death. Verse 31, we read that he, taking the twelve, said to them. Evidently, at some point, he pulled the apostles aside and shared with him his coming martyrdom. I think he did that because he loved them. They certainly loved him. The crowds, of course, would follow Jesus for many reasons, but few, I think, followed because they loved him. Certainly he was entertaining, wasn't he? I mean, what would happen next? He also occasionally provided free food and uh, performed wonderful miracles, but they weren't following him because they had allegiance to him. In fact, in John 2, he says he did not entrust himself to the crowds because he knew what was in man's heart. But these 12 were different, weren't they? They had this close, intimate relationship with Christ. In fact, from the very beginning, he selected these men and he focused not on the masses, but he poured himself in just to a, to a handful of individuals. Twelve men, a slow work, an unnoticed work, if you will. A work that, by the way, would end gloriously. I think that's the model that Jesus lays out for us of, for ministry. When I was pastoring in southern Virginia for seven years, I had a pastoral mentor. His name was Lee Copeland. Uh, Lee died last year, and I drove down to Farmville, Virginia for his funeral. And, uh, Lee, Lee was an interesting man. Uh, he was a man I mentioned who pastored his church for 40 years. His church probably never got larger than about 50 people. And you would look at Lee's life and think it was a pretty unremarkable life. I walked into the school auditorium that they had rented for his funeral, and there were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. The service was about three hours long, and it was one testimony after another how Lee impacted my life. Lee poured himself into me, and one man would say, Lee changed my life. I'm a different father and different husband because of him. And Lee just quietly just pouring himself into people, taking them aside, just as he did for me for seven years, and teaching me how to pastor God's people. It seems very similar to what the Lord is doing, that he's just pouring himself, investing himself in just a handful. What a wonderful model that is for you and I to take one or just a couple and invest ourselves into for the sake of many. That's what Christ is doing with these 12. In fact, in John 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, For a servant does not know what his master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. That's why he's telling them this. They're his friends. 
And he wants them to know what is going to happen. In fact, he even says there in verse 31, you see what he says? We are going up to Jerusalem. We're doing this. Right now, certainly the cross is his alone to bear. But he wants them with him. He tells them because he loves them. But there's perhaps another reason he announces his death. In fact, uh, my family was considering this passage last night during our family worship. And I asked my kids, why do you, why do you think he told these guys how he's going to die? And I think it was my daughter who said, he's trying to prepare them. Don't you think that's what's happening? That his death, of course, will throw them into shock. But there's going to come a time when they will remember, okay, this is exactly what he said was going to happen. This was not an accident. He told us beforehand that this was the plan. In fact, in John 13, he says, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. And believe they did. Because they would pray in Acts 4. In this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. They knew it because Christ prepared them that this was the plan of God. In fact, look in verse 32. It's interesting to consider what he means when he says, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Who will do that delivering? I think my, my initial reading of that would be, of course, the Jews. Would They would take him and they would deliver him over to, to the Romans. But I wonder if that's what Jesus has in mind. Perhaps he even has in mind that it's not the Jews that will hand him over, but it will be God himself. You know, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it said, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And so please understand that Jesus' death was not an unbelievable tragedy. It was predestined by God. In fact, it was foretold long ago, as you consider thirdly, a foretold death. Jesus says in verse 31, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. In other words, Jesus is not the first to speak about the death of the Messiah that the Old Testament has been preparing us over and over and over again for the coming Lord and the work in which He would do as we have said time and and again that the Old Testament is about Christ. It brings us our understanding of who Jesus is and what He has come to do. The Old Testament, in fact, speaks about Jesus over and over again. In, In fact, let me give you three ways this morning, if I can, as to how the Old Testament speaks about the Lord Jesus. Let me take you to Bible calls just for a minute, okay? These are big words. You ready? Okay. Number one, it speaks about Jesus through theophanies. Have you heard that word before? Sometimes called Christophanies. Um, and it's this idea that God would appear time and again in the Old Testament. And many biblical scholars understand that when God appears, it's actually the, the Son of God who is doing this work. And so when, when Abraham has a meal with God, remember that? I think it's in, in uh, Genesis 14 or maybe uh, 13. Or, or remember the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one who looked like a son of man, the Bible says. Or, or, or do, you, do you remember, um, uh, for instance, I don't remember. Let me see where I can find it. Do you remember that, um, that the Bible constantly refers to this very mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord, and yet the angel of the Lord speaks as if he is God? Well, I believe that, that's a pre-incarnate Christ pre-incarnate Son of God. We see Him appearing throughout the Old Testament. But the second way in which it prepares for the Old Testament is through what we call typology. That, that the, in, the, in the Old Testament, there are, are types or shadows 
that point us to the substance which is Jesus. As you think about the offices in the Old Testament, the king and the priest and the prophet all prepare us for our Lord. The sacrifices, the temple, the manna, the Passover lamb, the rock that gives water, the ark that brings God's people through His wrath. It all is preparing us for Christ Himself. Even the individuals point us to Jesus, don't they? I mean, Adam, who Jesus is just the better Adam who aced temptation and, and didn't get kicked out of the promised land, but brought, brings us back into it. Adam points to Jesus. Isaac does, the only son who will be sacrificed at the hand of his father. Joseph shows us Jesus as he's sold into this foreign land and rises up into to a position of power in order to save his people. Moses points us to Christ as he bleeds the people to redemption out of their bondage through the shed blood of the power. Passover lamb. Joshua points us to Jesus as he leads God's people from the wilderness into the promised land through the raging river, right? I mean, David shows us Jesus as he slays the unconquerable enemy by himself without, with, without effort at all. And all God's people come then and enjoy the spoils of that victory. Esther points us to Jesus as she risks her own life to identify herself with her people in order to save her people. It all continually is pointing us to Christ. You see that Jesus is seen through all these types in the Old Testament. The third way in which the Old Testament shows us Jesus is simply through prophecy. Psalm 22, Daniel 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55. I mean, it's over and over again, it prepares us for the coming Messiah. And Jesus says, listen, everything that's written about me is going to be fulfilled. And you wonder that when Jesus was reading Scripture and studying Scripture and meditating and memorizing Scripture... And reading that the Son of Man will be forsaken and His hands and feet will be pierced and He'll be wounded for our transgressions. He knew that's about me. I've come to do that. And he considered the Word and He says, I want you to understand the Word is true. It all points to me. Do you read the Word? I trust many of you do. But I wonder if there are some here that's been months since you've actually picked up the Bible and read it. Maybe even longer. I remember when I first picked up the Bible, I was 17 years old in high school, never read it. Totally new to me. Couldn't put it down. Some of the best years of my life, radically transformed by God's grace. And Jesus points us to Scripture to show us, teach us about Him. And the Bible in the Old Testament prepares us, but Jesus comes and even announces an amazing clarity what would happen as we consider forth a divine death. It's a divine death. As you look in verse 32, as he says, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they'll kill him. And then the third day, he'll rise from the dead. You notice he's predicting the future with absolute precision, all of which would be fulfilled. You say, well, the Old Testament, as you just said, prophesies about the future. It certainly does. But it seems like every prophet is very clear that when they tell the future, they come and say, listen, the word of the Lord came to me and said. Or someone had a dream. Someone had a vision. Do you notice when Jesus predicts the future, he doesn't say, okay, the word of the Lord is, or I had a dream or or a vision. He just describes the future as easily as you could describe this morning. In fact, this is not the first time he knows the future. He knew which fish that had the coin in his mouth. He, He knew how many husbands... The uh, woman at the well had, whom he never met. He, he knew where the colt could be found and what the owner would say when he took it. Right? He knows this. And the confidence in which he now speaks, this not may, might happen or probably will happen, but this will happen. As he tells the future, we see that it's simply no ordinary man who's doing it. 
He's showing himself to be the Son of God, for only God knows the future, as the Bible tells us over and over again. For instance, in Isaiah 40, new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. It was a divine death. And you think, well, if God is going to be killed, he will be afforded some type of respect or dignity in doing it. But I'm afraid not. As you notice, fifth, it is a humiliating death. In verse 32, he says he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. There's no dignity here. It's at the Jewish trial of Jesus through the long hours of the dark night. We read in Matthew 26, the priest saying, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us. You Christ, who is it that struck you? He, of course, is the most powerful being in the universe. Could have an instant called a legion of angels to his aid. Could have undone all of them with just but a word. And he lets them spit in his face and mock him, slap him around. They come to God himself and say, come on, who hit you? Prophesy, boy. Tell us. As Jesus, in great meekness, endures this humiliation for us. As bad as the Jews were, the Romans were even worse. In Matthew 27, we read, The soldiers took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him in the head. They slammed this crown of thorns upon him, they give him a stick, right? And they, they, oh, you're a king. They would all bow down before him. They would mock him. They would humiliate him. Oh, look at this king who we've beaten senseless. Look at the king with swollen eyes and a broken jaw and spit on his face. And then they grab the stick and begin to beat him in the head because of it. And, and he endured it because he loves you. And he will obey the Father. Isaiah 50 says, 700 years earlier, I offer my back to those who would beat me, my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. We see six, it was a painful death. Not just humiliating, but painful as he announces in verse 33 that they will flog him. To be flogged is to have your hands tied to a whipping post and your back and your your buttocks and your legs completely exposed. There would be two soldiers, one on each side with a whip in their hands, take turns whipping him. The whips would have, uh, would contain or be embedded with stone or pieces of um, metal or glass. And uh, these would serve as hooks as they would wrap around, they would dig into the flesh and tear away the flesh and the, and the muscles. Many people died from flogging. And, you know, you read that, and Jesus says they will, they will flog him, speaking of himself. And I think, well, what must he have been thinking when he talked about this event that would happen in his life in just a moment? Just the pain that that would endure. If, if you suffer in this life, which, which you will, right? 
if you experience trouble in this life, pain in this life, please remember that our, our Lord first suffered for you. And we may not know the reason for the pain in your life. But we know the reason the pain, we know a reason, um, the reason the pain is not in your life. And it's not because he doesn't love you. And we see the extent of his love as he will endure this pain. And then he says, they will kill me. Luke 23, verse 33, it says, When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. Just as it was foretold by Psalm 22, a band of evil men encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. A prophecy given 500 years of crucifixion before it was even invented. And then he dies. Luke 24, 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. That's the sacrifice of the Son of God. And embraced death and announced death. Foretold death, a divine death, a humiliating death, a painful death. That's what happened. But we need to know more than what happened. We need to know why. And so I want you, if we can, just just for a moment to turn over to Luke 22. And it's here in Luke 22, that is the evening before his crucifixion, that he gathers them together, that he might have this supper meal with them. And we see seventh, it is an atoning death. I'm just skipping through much of what we read here in this Lord's Supper. We read in verse 20 of Luke 22, that he says, this cup... That is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying, I'm going to pour out my blood in order to bring the new covenant. Now, this new covenant is foretold over and over again in the Old Testament, perhaps most clearly in Jeremiah 31, where God promises, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. For there to be forgiveness, For God to remember your sins no more, Christian Christ would spill His blood. He would give up His life in our place. He came to give Himself as a ransom payment for you. He came to die for our forgiveness, for our atonement. You see, this God who can say, let there be light, and there was light, who can say, let there be sun and moon, and there was sun and moon, who can say, let there be humans made in my image, and there were humans made in His image, if I could say with reverence, could not say, let there be forgiveness, and there was forgiveness. Because He is good, He will punish injustice and wickedness and sin and oppression. And because He is loving, He will send Jesus to take that punishment for us. Perhaps you have heard it said, a God who just forgives is not a holy God. A God who won't forgive sin is not a loving God. A God who can't forgive sin is not a wise God. But in the cross, we have the perfection of wisdom and love and the holiness of our great God as Jesus gives up His life for you and for me. Perhaps when driving into D.C., you've driven across what was once called the 14th Street Bridge. It's no longer called that. It's called the 
Arlen D. Williams Bridge that heads over the Potomac River into Washington, D.C. It's named after a passenger on Air Florida Flight Number 90 who during freezing weather crashed shortly after takeoff from Reagan National on January 13, 1982. The plane failed to gain altitude and struck the 14th Street Bridge and plunged into the icy Potomac River. And most of the plane immediately was submerged, taking most of the lives of the people on the plane. And yet the tail section broke off. And amazingly, there were about six people in that tail section floating on the river who survived, at least initially. The helicopter soon arrived and dropped the rescue bucket down to the man who seemed to be most alert and most accessible, a man named Arlen D. Williams. And they pulled the, the bucket back up, and instead of Arlen Williams being in the bucket, there was someone else in it. And they dropped the bucket a second time down to Arlen Williams, and instead of Arlen Williams coming up, there was another person in that bucket. They did that again and again and again for five times, dropping the bucket to the same man five times, bringing up someone other than him. When all were rescued, they dropped the bucket lastly down to Arlen Dean Williams for the sixth time, but it was too late. As the bucket came, the tail section submerged, taking Arlen Williams with it, giving up his life that others may be saved. And my friends, it's just simply a glimmer of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you, giving up his life as an atoning sacrifice In fact, it's interesting to me that this prediction of Jesus' sacrifice immediately follows the story of the rich young ruler who Jesus says, listen, you you need to sell all you have and come follow me. And he would not be willing to make that sacrifice. And then Jesus immediately explains what? The sacrifice in which he is willing to do for you and I. And he would give up far more than money. He would give up everything for us so that a holy, good, wise, loving God could be merciful towards your iniquities and remember your sins no more. Do you know this, God? Have you bowed to Him in faith? The Bible says we are not saved by our works or our goodness. We're simply saved when in faith we call out to Him and say, God, have mercy on me. Wash me in the blood of Christ. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you not even do that now? Just forget the rest of the sermon and do work with God silently in your own heart that you might know the forgiveness in which He would offer you through His death upon the cross. Of course, we know that the the death of Jesus was not the end of the plan. He explains that His death was only temporary. As you find your way back to Luke 18, you will read at the end of verse 33, and on the third day, He will rise. Jesus will do what no one ever has done before. He will come back from the dead, never to die again. He will have ultimate victory over death. He will do it three days later on Sunday. That's why we're here this morning. This is the resurrection day. We gather on Sunday because we do not worship a crucified, dead Lord, but we worship a risen, victorious, and reigning Savior who will one day will come again in great power and glory and love. And so his resurrection validated everything he said about his death. It shows us that God has accepted him by raising him back from the dead. And so, my friends, we might look to his death for our forgiveness. But you want to find hope? You go to the empty tomb. 
And there you will, you will find that hope to live in this, this world of trouble and trial and uncertainty. You want, where am I going to find strength to face today? And tomorrow I'll tell you where. You go to the empty tomb and you realize that your God is alive, your God is victorious, and He is for you now and forevermore. You live life in light of a risen Savior. Number nine. It was an unexpected death. In verse 34 we read, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Somewhat kind of a shocking verse, isn't it? It would be shocking if it wasn't so frequent. We read something like that. I mean, it's pretty clear what's going to happen. There's not a lot of ambiguity here. I mean, we know what spit is, and we know what flogging is. We know what killing is, but they just didn't get it. In fact, Luke tells us three times they didn't get it. You see this? They, one, number one, they did not, they understood none of these things. Number two, it was hidden from them. Number three, they did not grasp what was said. By the way, if you're, if you're starting a religion, you probably don't include that part, right? You notice that the founders of our religion are not often presented as the, as the top of their class, right? Um, these, these are not like the really insightful ones who are getting the truth before everybody else is getting it, right? No, he, 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 it seems like this is the exact opposite. It's so contrary to their expectations of the Messiah. He's their coming king. <laughs> what do you expect a king to do? Come and die immediately a martyr's death before you even take your throne? So maybe they thought it was another parable. Maybe it was a riddle to them. But of course it was neither. It was exactly what Jesus was saying. They would not understand until later, until God opened their hearts and put the pieces together for them. I don't know if God's ever done that in your life. You ever, you ever hear like a truth dozens of times? Maybe you even heard the gospel over and over and over again. And one day some guy says it in some way at some time. And all of a sudden that truth just takes hold of you and just changes you, right? And you think, well, why then and there? And I think there's probably many reasons but one of them is that God opened your heart to receive it. That's why we pray for the lost. Because we believe that God can open hearts that men might put their faith in Christ. And we see that He would do this one day, but not for them at this time. They did not understand it. Of course, you and I, you know, we've been a Christian for a while. We understand it, don't we? We understand this death. Yet my question for us, do we understand it to the point that it's truly changed the way we live? Consider last and tenth. It is a life-changing death. I want to, we skipped a couple verses, and I want to move over to verse 28. And the reason I skipped those is I think this really helps us try to apply these truths to our lives. We, we know, of course, that Jesus just t- talked to this man who worships money. He said, sell everything, come follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven. He refuses. He walks away sad. Jesus is sad, right? Everybody's sad. The apostles are confused because Jesus says, listen, I want you to understand it's really hard for people to be saved. I mean, in fact, it's impossible. And they, with that in their, in their hearts, Peter, of course, speaks up. It's Peter. In verse 28, we read, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. We did what you asked that other guy to do. I, I, I mean, I'm so happy for, to have Peter in this Bible, aren't you? I mean, just Peter just kind of, I, but Lord, what about us, right? We've done this. We, we, we've, I mean, just eager and naive and always overconfident. I think someone once described Peter like Charlie Brown, um, always running at the ball, but never quite able to kick it, right? And fall on his back, look like a fool and just get back up and run after it again. 
And what about us? Aren't we good? Are we okay? Peter asks. We've given up everything, Jesus. And it's true. Of course they had. And notice what Jesus says to them in verse 29. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Just stop there for a moment. You notice Jesus is inviting not only the apostles, but all of us into sacrifice. He's saying, okay, you need to, you need to be willing to give up. And the list is pretty hard. It's a high bar, isn't it? In Luke 14, verse 33, he says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I wonder if you would give up any of these things for Jesus. I wonder what if, what if your father was angered by your faith in Jesus? Would you still follow him? Or what if Jesus takes you away from your family? Or what, what, if, what, what if following Jesus meant you don't get advanced very far in your career because you won't make moral compromises? Or what if following Jesus means you end your career because you won't endorse sin? Or what, what if following Jesus means you would give up a significant amount of your income for gospel causes? Right? What if following Jesus meant you can't marry the person you're in love with because they do not share your love for the Messiah and God forbid such marriages? Or what if it meant that you had to be single for the rest of your life and fully devote yourself to God? What if following Jesus brought mocking upon you and insults and maybe even a little spit in the face if you identify yourself with Jesus at school? Would you do it? Would you, would you sacrifice? Because Jesus tells us, listen, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to give up. You're going to have to sacrifice. There is life-changing sacrifice. And I wonder, my Western loud and brothers and sisters in Christ, is there ever a time when we just sit down and think, okay, Lord, how can I sacrifice for the gospel? Because I feel like most of our decisions are all oriented around how can I maximize joy and opportunity and ease and how can I spend my money and live my life so I can be more comfortable and have all the things I want. I wonder, do we actually ever think, okay, Lord, I live for you. Where can I bring in uncomfortability into my life? Where can I bring in sacrifice in my life in order to further the work of the gospel? In fact, I would counsel parents, beware. I speak to my own heart here of teaching your kids that life revolves around maximizing joy and opportunity. Instead of how are we going to orient our life around the gospel of Jesus Christ and live for it and where do the pieces fit in once we do that. He invites us for this sacrifice. Well, why would we do this? Well, he gives us two reasons, I think. One should be obvious to us, right? Why would I give up anything? Well, look what he has given up for us, right? I mean, he gave this all up for us, as we've seen. And now now what do we do, Christian? We follow Jesus, don't we? And we who follow Jesus, right? If we're going to follow him, we're going to find sacrifice and trouble in this life as well. But another reason we would do so is the promise he gives in verse 30. He says, if you give this up, will you not receive many, many times more in this life and also in the age to come? He's, he's saying, when you sacrifice for me because of what I've done for you, I want you to understand I'm going to reward you. One gospel says a hundredfold in this life and in the life that is coming, you shall have eternal life. 
He says, you're going to have family here. Even when you give up family, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to work in your life. I'm going to gather you to to my people and you're going to become part of a new people and you come to Christ and you find, well, I got all sorts of siblings who will help me follow Jesus and your marriage struggles and you find, I got all sorts of parents who will counsel me in love and, and when your children leave, you think, well, I got all sorts of children around here that I can nurture and disciple and even when your life ends and all your biological family's dead, you say, I got all this family who's going to mourn my loss and bury me in the hope of the resurrection. You have a family in Christ. It's called the church. And I think one of the reasons why American Christians find sacrifice difficult is they have forsaken what God will give us in lieu of the sacrifice, namely his people. And we live lives in isolation of other one of one another. And then we say, well, I can't sacrifice. But if we actually had the relationships in which God intends for us to have, I wonder if sacrifice would be far easier. I wonder, do you have that family in the church? Uh, don't be passive. You have to seek it. Are you in a community group? Are you in a discipling relationship? Are, are you serving together? And God gives us the church to make up for what we give up for Him. And then He says, listen, I'll give you that, and then I'll give you eternal life. In fact, in verse 22, I'll give you treasures in heaven, a life free from sin, a life free from pain, a life free from sadness, a life full of glory, love and the unmediated presence of God. This is what he offers us as he walks through Jerusalem. If you read Mark's gospel as we close this morning, Mark tells us that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Walking to Jerusalem, amazed and afraid. And I wonder if it felt kind of like a death march for them. That there was some sense that this disastrous event is looming over the horizon. They were afraid. And yet they still walked with Him. Because they would rather be with Jesus than anywhere else. Even if the place He led was a place of fear. That's what Christians do. We orient our life around our crucified and risen Lord and we go wherever He takes us. And, and, and we, we give up whatever He asks. It was in Burundi not too long ago that an African Christian was facing the guns of his enemies. And he said, before you kill me, may I say a few things? And the gunman said, okay, you speak quickly. He said, I want to tell you three things. Number one, I love you. Number two, I love my country. He said, number three, I want to sing a song. And so in his tribal language, he sang, Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. And then they shot him. And he came to Jesus. He came to one who died for him and rose again for him. That's what Christians do. We give up everything wherever he leads. We renounce all things for the one who has died for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of our Lord. We shall thank you, I trust, for eternity. 
more and more giving you praise for his work for us. Help us, Father, not to move beyond the cross, not to think we've advanced beyond it as Christians, that we need to think about something more intriguing or interesting. Help our, our the center of our heart to be upon the sacrifice of Jesus for us and the calling upon our own lives. We praise you, Lord, that whatever we are called to do, whatever we are called to give, you will take note. And we, in your grace, will receive much more in this life and life to come. Help us today and forevermore to delight in a Savior who loved us to the point where he would die so that you would remember our sins no more. Is that not extraordinary? I think we, if we were honest, Father, we would say our, even now our hearts are full of sin. And in your grace and through the sacrifice of our Lord, you say to us, I remember your sins no more. And we praise you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are